Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Space travel, life in space, what does that mean to you? I, I was thinking the other day that there's about a handful of topics that, broadly speaking, attract interest you know, to most people. You know, and we all have our own things, what we're interested in, what we're not interested in. But I think this topic or these topics here appeal to a lot of people. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, right? It's a world that most of us are probably never going to experience. And, you know, we don't have a ton of exposure to it outside of maybe some movies and whatnot. So in the spirit of this show, I thought it'd be pretty interesting to speak to someone who knows intimately about this entire field. And that's what I've done. I have this excellent, excellent guest lined up for us today who's lived in space. He's commanded the International Space Station. He was a NASA astronaut. And we have this really interesting conversation where we dive into kind of the obvious sort of questions a lot of people might have about, you know, what's the training like preparing for a flight in space? What is it like living in space? But also we get into some conversations around things like conflict in space. You know, sometimes we had these geopolitical issues on Earth, say between Russia and the US. What's it like when you're living in this tin can floating around Earth, right? You know, with people from these countries that, you know, back, uh, back on Earth, people aren't really getting along so well. So we kind of dive into that stuff. And also to topics such as, you know, how life in space, that whole experience affects you years later. We dive into things like that and a whole lot more. So let me more formally introduce you to him and then uh, we'll get into it. So Terry Virts is a retired U.S. Air Force test fighter pilot. Not only that, he is a NASA veteran of two space flights and a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and Harvard Business School. That said, he is an outlier in the truest sense. His professional background, career, accomplishment, and present-day work varies to the point that attempts to pigeonhole him into one title is a near-futile endeavor. And trust me, I've tried. And take his LinkedIn about section description, which reads as follows. I'm a founder of Endeavor Renewable Energy, a company that will produce renewable diesel, hydrogen, electricity, biochar, and graphene. I'm also developing several TV and film projects and have authored several books, How to Astronaut and National Geographic's View from Above. I'm a guest lecturer at Harvard Business School and the USC School of Cinematic Arts and speak at corporate and public events around the globe, sharing stories and leadership perspectives from my time in space. Finally, I serve on several boards as an advisor. Yeah, you see what I mean? Well, all this adds up to fascinating insights and perspectives that are hard to come by. Surely, I mean, not too many of us have been a U.S. Air Force test fighter pilot, an astronaut, or been put in charge of an international space station as a commander. So for all these reasons and many, many more, it's an absolute honor to welcome you to the program. How are you doing, Terry? <laughs> Good. Thanks for having me on. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure when I wrote that LinkedIn thing. I'll have to see uh, see if I need to update it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty good to me. I don't know. Yeah. Again, thanks for taking some time and joining the program. Really excited for many, many reasons. And I think listeners are really going you know, to appreciate this. With that in mind, maybe we'd uh, just jump right into things here. I do have the, the first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners would know, it's just a segment where I read off a definition of the person's job, or sometimes their, their industry. And I like to do it for a couple of reasons. One, it brings everybody up to speed on what the person does. But then also, too, I think it's a really nice point to, to look at the profession itself and kind of examine it from different you know viewpoints. So, of course, I do have you down here as an astronaut. I know you're involved in several different projects as well, but I think a lot of them probably stem from your earlier work. You would probably agree with that. So let me just read that off. And from there, I can uh, ask your perspectives on, on the definition itself. Does that sound all right? Yeah, let's jump in. Okay, here we go. So astronaut. An astronaut from the ancient Greek astron, meaning star, and nautis, meaning sailor, is a person trained, equipped, and deployed by a human spaceflight program to serve as a commander or crew member aboard a spacecraft. Although generally reserved for professional space travelers, the term is sometimes applied to anyone who travels into space, including scientists, politicians, journalists, and tourists. And I also grabbed this to NASA candidacy requirements. 
for being an astronaut. Let me just read those off quickly as well. The candidate must be a citizen of the U.S. The candidate must complete a master's degree in a STEM field, including engineering, biological science, physical science, computer science, or mathematics. The candidate must have at least two years of related professional experience obtained after degree completion or at least 1,000 hours pilot in command time on a jet aircraft. The candidate must also be able to pass the NASA long-duration flight astronaut physical. The candidate must also have skills in leadership, teamwork, and communications. A bit of a mouthful, stumbled through it a little bit, but uh, <laughs> first take, what do you think of this, Terry? Well, that, I think that uh, job description has been there for a long time for NASA. The The big thing, if you want to be a NASA astronaut, is you need a technical degree, you know, some type of math or science or engineer. I was a math major, applied math, okay. and I was also a French minor. And then the master's degree thing sounds new. I think I, it used to be you either need the master's degree or the thousand hours of jet time. Cause I, I was, I was the pilot. I was not the, yeah. uh, you know, the scientist kind of guy, but you know, that's the NASA minimum requirements. Now, most people have like more than just the minimums, obviously, but there's other ways to be an astronaut nowadays. You can go make a lot of money <laughs> and mm, that's true enough. You know, that's the other, uh, that's the other qualification. So there are different paths, but for me, it was NASA was the thing that I wanted to do. I mean, I loved, you know, the Apollo missions and I wanted to fly the space shuttle. And so that was, that was my own personal journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're going to get into that in a little bit, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point that you raised too, about the, the private sector getting involved, because that's certainly been one of the biggest, you know, additions to this whole sort of realm, I would, I would say in the last, what, four or five years. Yeah. I, I laugh. People are like, well, finally, normal people can go into space. And I'm like, right. That, obviously, I'm not a normal person, you know, <laughs> grew, grew up in like middle class America. I was the first person to go to college. You know, finally, normal people like Elon or like, you know, Jeff Bezos can go to can go to space. Right. Um, so it's a funny definition. But I, it, the the fact that more people can go to space is very cool. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're certainly entering into a different phase. And it feels as though you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there seemed like for a little while, there was a bit of a lull in the, maybe the interest a little bit. It was waning, you know, from when mm -hmm. the, the space programs had originally started. And then it kind of just got normal. And I'm finger quoting this for those mm -hmm. who can't see. But uh, in the last, again, five, 10 years, it feels as though there's been more articles. It's even in my feed, whether it's a social feed yeah. or going to, to news sites, there there are more articles. Yeah. In fact, I've, in the last week, I feel, you know, <laughs> there's been two or three that just keep popping up and maybe it's that my radar's turned on to all of this in preparing for this talk, but, but all the same, I think there's something to that. Yeah, there is. Well, there's definitely, if you want to follow space, you can get 24 seven space content. If you want to follow the Kardashians, you can get 24 seven Kardashian content, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in Ukraine, you can get all the content you want. And when I was a kid, I wish we had this. I got astronomy magazine and I had to wait every month that my astronomy would show up and I'd read the whole thing in a day and then I'd have to wait <laughs> another month for the next magazine. Well, now you get astronomy magazine, you know, every day or every hour, some some content like it. So that's it's it's a plus and a minus, I think, of our modern world is that if there's something you're interested in, you can get lots of it, which is great, but you're not gonna hear other things happening. You're not going to get other points of view, which is pretty dangerous in other ways, but most definitely it's a whole different podcast really. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm completely with you on all of that though. Yeah. In terms of, I guess, getting back to this notion of, of being an astronaut, you know, what, what mm. would you say some of the biggest misconceptions about it? I'm sure there, there's so many, but uh, maybe for, for some, even for myself, like when you consider it, or or a young person, even an adult, you know, you have a few sort of images in your mind. Maybe it's the the white space suit that you're wearing, the shuttle itself floating in space. There's a few things that you know most people would kind of attach to that job yeah. or profession. But beyond that, you know, what, what would you say in terms of these misconceptions of it all? Well, I was at NASA for 16 years, and I spent about half a year in space, and the other 15 and a half years I was on the ground. And so the astronauts we just hired a few years ago are already flying in space. So they, those guys have it pretty good. But the majority of your time as an astronaut is not in space. It's on the ground, either training or doing other jobs, helping NASA in lots of different ways, working at Mission Control, working on the new rockets we have coming up, or there's a lot of ground jobs you have. So probably the biggest misconception is that 
all you do is fly in space and that's not mm-hmm. I, we we wish that's what it was uh, but that's not <laughs> what it is yeah okay yeah yeah no, no, no that's a really good point and i think that sort of leads into a, a question later on that we're going to get into but before that Maybe you can meander over into this other segment here, Terry. It's something called Pathways. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a segment that I set up in the last three or four months. And basically, it's it's inspirational in nature. And it kind of tries to show that most pathways, career pathways, that is, aren't this linear sort of line yeah. straight yeah. to where you want to go. Maybe it's different for you. But, uh, you know, I, I know in your book, How to Astronaut, you certainly spell a lot of this out. But for those who haven't read the book yet, and I certainly encourage everybody to go grab a copy of that because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, maybe you could share with listeners a little bit, you know, how you ended up into space or on a yeah. career path to, to to where you've ended up now. Yeah, my my journey was as a pilot. There's different like flavors of astronaut. There's different categories of NASA astronaut. There mm-hmm. there's engineers, there's medical doctors, there's scientists, there's pilots, and so there's a few different like categories they put you in. Yeah. Back in the shuttle program, you were either a pilot or mission specialist. Uh, now the capsules are automated. There really isn't much, if any, piloting to do. So you, everybody is an astronaut. So when I was a kid, I didn't. Know, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut. I grew up with posters of galaxies and the space shuttle and even an F-16 on my wall. I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't know how. And as a teenager, a family friend told me that I should read The Right Stuff. And it's a book that uh, Tom Wolfe wrote. It's about the early astronauts, the uh, Mercury, you know, the first seven astronauts, and it's the best book. It's just a spectacular book. Um, definitely a bygone era, but that showed me the path. It was these guys have been fighter pilots and then test pilots and then astronauts. And so that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I that was the path that I ended up taking. So that's how I took that. But the 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 key thing is, you know, figure out your path and then figure out a way to do it if it's something you really want to do. Words are very easy. But if you really want to accomplish something, it's going to require more than words. There, there's, you're going to have to actually come up with a plan to get there. Well, it sounds like to me, I mean, from that vision, you know, in your youth, it sounds like, well, this is the line I want to, I want to go on and this is where I'm going to go. Were there any moments along that journey, though, in terms of, you know, achieving what you wanted to achieve where it wasn't going as smoothly as you'd hoped, perhaps, and you had to kind of like jump off that line, you know, go on to a different path and then maybe rejoin? Or was it more or less like, well, there's the goal yeah. and you're... Before I was an astronaut, I was very lucky. I I was one of the youngest Air Force Academy grads. I think I was, there's only a handful out of a thousand that were younger younger than me. When I got to test pilot school, I was probably the youngest pilot there. When I got to NASA, I was definitely the youngest pilot, one of the youngest they had in the whole shuttle program. So I was I was very fortunate up to that point in my career where yeah. I kind of was getting things right, right away. I, it wasn't like I was a straight A student. It wasn't like I was the number one graduate from everything I wasn't. I just, things went fast. And then whoa, I got whoa. to NASA and then they really slowed down. Then it was a decade before my first flight. So once okay. I got to NASA, because there had been some shuttle problems, they hired too many astronauts. They had the Columbia accident, which was the 20th anniversary this week. So all these things happened to really slow things down. And then I have a post-NASA career we can talk about if you want that was very, very, very different. I think we'll talk about that later. So I had a weird life, I guess, in that the first half, everything was really fast. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, everything slowed down and changed. Okay. Okay. Really returning to that point where things were going very quickly for you. Yeah. Was there any particular reasoning for that? Were you just being, you know, flagged or identified as having exceptional skills or abilities or? No, I mean, the reality is there's a lot of smart fighter pilots in the Air Force. There's a lot of smart and talented test pilots. I think one thing from my application that stood out was that I spoke French. Mm-hmm. I had done an exchange at the French Air Force Academy as a cadet. In fact, I was there last week. I've been an exchange student in Finland. And so I had this international experience that very few Air Force fighter pilots do. And so that I think that really made me stand out. The head, the chief astronaut at the time had also done the same French exchange when he was at the academy 10 years before me. So that didn't hurt. But a lot of times in life, it it requires a little bit of luck. To get your big break is going to require some luck. The key is that you're prepared for it when it happens. When When this guy had took the job of chief astronaut and he was looking through applications, I had already done my French Air Force Academy exchange. I had already done all the things that I needed to do. So I was able to take advantage of it. But 
the more prepared you are, the luckier you get. That's an old saying. And I, th- I think there's yeah. something to that. Most definitely. I mean, it sounds like a, a series of serendipitous sort of moments, but like you said, I mean, the, the positioning of yourself to, to be in that moment where you can take advantage, you know, uh, yeah. is certainly a big part of it. And also to right. that point as well of, you know, your application perhaps and how it was viewed outside of just the skill of learning a different language, I'm sure, which is much appreciated and, and highly valued, but it also probably speaks to the the, the drive of you and sort of your views, your worldviews as well. And that might've been an appealing point. And again, it's probably a point that we're going to get into later in this talk, but uh, it speaks to that too. And I, I would imagine that was probably highly valued just as much as the skill itself of being able to communicate in a foreign language. So, yeah, well, that that's good. I think <laughs> I probably have more confidence than I have skill. <laughs> so there, <laughs> There's something to, to be said for that. A lot of times they'll say, you know, like men are overconfident, but they're not really that good. And women are really good, but they're not as confident. And I don't know if that's a man or woman thing, or if it's just whatever. I, I probably have more confidence than ability, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, you know what, in life, if you, if you have a brain that you could learn and you could be flexible then that, then the confidence is really the, the main thing. Sure is. No, that's a really good point. All right. Well, maybe we could shift on over to a different segment here, Terry. It's a a Q and a discovery. I mean, basically continue this back and forth. And, uh, you know, in terms of your book, getting back to this book, you know, how to astronaut, there's so many jaw dropping moments and I was awestruck throughout, but one of the things or one of the sections within there that sort of got me was, uh, in relation to the trainings, the trainings mm-hmm. of becoming, you know, an astronaut. And of course you had things like procedural trainings, uh, space assimilation trainings, something called a vomit comet, uh, oh, yeah. training, simulating emergencies, uh, as well as survival training. All these things kind of come to mind. And uh, maybe you could speak to a few of these points if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, the book How to Astronaut was, I got one copy right here. It was 51 basically short essays. There are five, six, seven yeah. page chapters about 51 random aspects of spaceflight. So like you said, some of them are expected like how do you train for launch on a shuttle or how do you do medical training? I was the crew medical officer. So I'm not a doctor, but that was my job on the, on the station. Um, and then some of them were not expected. Like, what do you do with a dead body? If your crewmate dies or, you know, have, have people or have they not in space, whatever. So I, I wanted the goal, at least, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question that for the book mm-hmm. was to make people say, wow, and laugh and without, mm-hmm. it's not for space nerds. It's, it's for anybody. I, I tried to make a book that was very much for anybody, but just to make it more accessible because space is obviously something that people are very interested in. Uh, lots of people are, and it's a little bit intimidating. So I tried to bring it down to the masses. And I also wrote it myself, which is, I think, pretty unusual for space books. Mo- most have some type of ghostwriter. My goal was to write it myself. You know, you checked a lot of the boxes you were just mentioning. As I said, I mean, it was quite engaging, you know, for myself. And again, I would certainly encourage everybody to to go grab a copy of that book because uh, it, it is accessible, you know, and allows you to kind of get this this peek behind the curtain, if you will, of you know what it takes to become an astronaut. In, in returning to some of those points about the trainings, uh, procedural trainings or emergency trainings, yeah. or even some of these survival trainings, is there anything you could sort of add or just sort of like tease? the audience with that, uh, uh, you know, when I was an F-16 pilot, I remember I had this one mission in Korea. I was leading a four ship. There was four jets. I was the lead. It was low altitude at night. At the time we had this system that we flew at low altitude at night and we had bad enemy bandits pretending to be MiG 29s. And we landed. I remember thinking that's as busy as a human being can be there. It, I'm flying my jet. Their ground is right there. It's nighttime. I got to keep track of my four guys. I've got to keep track of these MiGs coming in. We got to put laser guided bombs on the target. That was the most busy that a human being could be in my brain. And then I got the NASA and flew the shuttle. And during ascent, especially as a pilot and the commander, there is so much going on. And the, the simulator instructors would just throw way too many malfunctions that that would never happen in real life. Mm-hmm. But what they were trying to do is, was just max out your brain, stress you out as much as they could so that on the real day, you're not going to have 20 different malfunctions, but you are going to have a rocket launching, which is going to stress you out in its own way. <laughs> so the, the big thing about the training that was really important was to stress your brain out emotionally as much as you mm-hmm. can, because in the real, when you really fly, you're going to be stressed out in a different way, but it was, I guess, the closest we could come to stress. And they 
they really they they push you to the limit. A really a really high functioning crew and a really high functioning mission control team with the flight director and the flight controllers. That was a thing of beauty to watch that in operation or in the shuttle. Yeah, I bet, I bet, and it must have been one thing too to be like even aware of the, the reasoning behind this. Of course, you're probably in the moment. You know what they're doing. You know, you know the reasoning right. behind it, but still trying to uh, you know to get through it and to to manage yeah. those emotions and to, to to really train yourself in that sense and mentally compartmentalize and yeah, it yeah. must have been yeah yeah it was it was definitely a full time job mm. <laughs> being a space shuttle pilot. Mm, yeah, most definitely. It sounds like it. Well, maybe we could shift over to another question here. Speaking of the mental side of the work that you've done and in mm-hmm. relation to that job, you know, it, it would seem to me that there are certain traits that somebody like yourself or an astronaut would be hardwired with or would need to be hardwired with to be successful within space. I mean, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I mean, just, you know, intelligence, creativity, maybe open-mindedness, diligence, extroverted personality. I mean, those are things that sort of pop into my mind. But is there anything you'd like to add to that or you perhaps take away? No, those are good. I You don't have to be an extrovert. There's plenty of or there's astronaut introverts, but mm. I think your ability to be flexible and learn new things, that was my favorite part of the job. It wasn't the same thing every day, but it, it was a perfect job for an ADD person like myself because every day you're doing different stuff. You're doing maintenance on on mechanical things, you're doing science experiments. Some days you're unloading or loading cargo ships, which is a huge job. Some days you're doing spacewalks. Some days you're doing interviews, you know, media interviews, getting ready to go back to earth, you know, every day or exercise every day, medical uh, procedures on yourself. So every day was something different. And so if you're the kind of person that likes to work on the accounts receivable spreadsheet at your office all day, every day, then astronauts, not the job for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you, if you, you don't mind sitting at the desk for a little bit, but then you want to get up and get around and then that yeah. and do different things that that might be the job for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the one that I had, you know, listed off there, that extroverted personality, it was interesting that you said that that's not a requirement. I, I would, the reason I'd put that down or I thought is just like, it's, it's a contained space. Obviously you, you right. gotta be working as a team. You gotta be together, you know, on things wholly. If you had somebody that was more within themselves and didn't really enjoy being as social with others, I, yeah. I, I would assume that would be a bit of a challenge at times in yeah. achieving something. But no, maybe the most important skill is your interpersonal, which doesn't mean you have to be loud in the life of the party, no, which I associate not. with that. But in fact, those are not the people you want. Um, mm. It was funny. We had we did this all day psychological test when I was interviewing to be an astronaut a long time ago. And I remember afterwards, they were like, man, you got the best score. They were, they loved my personality. And remember the Briggs Myers personality inventory yeah. that was something, I don't know if they oh, do it. Yeah. I did it, you know, a long time ago. And yeah. there are these four different areas and mine was always in the middle. I never had like strong ESTP or INFJ, whatever the letters yeah. were. I was always kind of a little of one and a little of the other. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to be for space crews because uh, the really strong personality guy is kind of fun yeah. at the party or at the bar. But like, if you have to live in the same can all day, every day, that <laughs> it could get a little bit tiresome. So yeah, be, being able to just kind of roll with the punches and not be too uptight about anything. When I, when I looked at applications in the last months of my time at NASA, my last task was to help with their selection of the last astronaut class. Well, now maybe two astronaut classes ago, I looked for people who the most important skill is to be able to get along with other people. There's a lot, you have to be competent. You have to be able to have a level of technical competence, of course. But then once, and then beyond that, their differentiator is your personality, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I wanted to build that into this, uh, this discussion, because I think that it would have to be one of the most critical elements outside, of course, the, the technical elements of it all. Yeah. It's interesting to hear though, nonetheless. In terms of your time in space, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's so many different moments there uh, from an outsider's perspective that would, you know, not force you, but encourage you to think, you know, existentially on, on a number of different topics or a number of different things. And, uh, you know, human life and living, all that stuff, you know, looking down on, on, on our planet. I'd love to know the impacts that it's had on you as a person yeah. from your time in space. I think a lot of people call that the overview effect. How does it change you when you see the planet? Well, the the first thing is I can remember this moment where I it just like hit me that 
I'm in outer space and my planet's over there. I mean, that's a pretty powerful moment. Like I'm not on my planet anymore. There's earth and I'm not there. But like that, that um, sorry to interrupt really quickly, but yeah. I mean, like that, that's the origin of this question right there is because there's, there's so much imagery of that, yeah. you know, from, from the international space station, looking down on planet earth. And those images are absolutely stunning, mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. But also too, at the same time, like I, I could not imagine actually being the person taking that photo or sitting within the space station, not sitting, yeah. floating within the space station and looking down and what that experience would be like, aside from the beauty, like yeah. how that would actually hit you, you know, and affect you. So sorry to interrupt there, but. No, 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 it's true. You can't imagine, like I, I had imagined a lot. I had read all the books yeah. I had seen all the movies. I was in the astronaut office for a decade talking to my colleagues. But when I first saw the first sunrise I saw, it was like overpowering. As we went into the sunrise, all the frozen liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen broke apart from the fuel lines when they closed up. And we were flying in this cloud of ice going into sunrise. And as the sun was shining on it, it was like thousands of sparkling flying yeah. things. It was insane how powerful it was. And then just looking out at the sunrise and looking down as we flew over the Alps upside down, I had to like really focus. I remember my commander Zambo was like, hey, Terry, are you with me? Because I was like, look at that, man. It's awesome. And I was like, yeah, I'm with you, Zambo. Because I, I had to fly the shuttle. I had to deal with like seeing the most spectacular thing you've ever seen and yeah. then get back to work because I'm flying the space shuttle. Yeah, it was it, it was pretty awesome. And I had a whole... Seven months of that, two weeks on my first flight, 200 days on my second flight. And I've written several books about it. I, I did a couple of movies. There's an IMAX movie called A Beautiful Planet I Help Make. Yeah. But you were right. Unless you actually see it with your own eyeballs in space, you, mm. you, you just can't imagine it. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. In terms of, I guess, like the impact that that's had on your life now, you know, here you've transitioned to a second, third, fourth, fifth career and all the different yeah. projects that you're doing. What degree of influence would you say some of those those sort of experiences have had on the way that you view the world itself now or the, yeah. the types of projects that you're attracted to? I think it really informed like a big picture. I'm not nearly as black and white as I used to be. I think when you're young, it's easy for everything to be black and white. And this is right and that's wrong. And this is good and that's bad. Good point. And most things are gray. They're not black and white. Some stuff's black and white. What's what's happening in Ukraine is black. It's not white, right? That like that's evil. There is evil in the world for sure. But in most situations, I can kind of see both sides, and I'm not nearly as uptight. I, don't, I hope anyway. And I think the um, just that philosophy can inform everything you do in life. Like try and see things from other people's perspective, and don't have your preconceived notion. It's also really hard to be impressed with celebrity. When you've seen the universe, yeah. I mean, I'm impressed with the things that people do. I've got a good friend working on a malaria vaccine at Brown University. I had him on my podcast, Down to Earth with Terry Virch. That that impresses me. Or yeah. things like what you're doing, you know, just people that are spreading good in the world. That that's what yeah. impresses me, as opposed to yeah. we we kind of have this celebrity worship culture. The the royal family, my God, that's the worst example of uh <laughs> Those poor people, like I'm sure they're good, decent human beings, but they're hounded constantly, right? So uh, it's, yeah, I would yeah. love to meet Kate and William and just have a beer or whatever, they have a right. pint or whatever, but I don't want to hound them and I don't want to know what color dress, blah, blah, blah. The celebrity uh, thing is definitely not at the top of your list after <laughs> after being in space, <laughs> I don't think, yeah. Fair enough, yeah. Well, that's probably a... Uh... A, a nice sort of uh, impact that it's had, you know, because I think that's, a, yeah. that's you're right. And it's something that uh, probably a lot of us could uh, pull back on <laughs> to a certain degree. Some of that fascination there. As far as, um, you know, your interest within the environment, you know, um, some of those issues surrounding those points, again, floating in space, looking down at the, the beauty of what the world offers. Yeah. And acknowledging a lot of the challenges we're facing right now with climate crisis issues and everything else. And you know, yeah. some of the projects that you're, you're, showing interest in right now you know for that point in particular would you say that's also been influenced by by your time up there well for sure though i mean when you look out the window it's just anecdotal that's just your eyes if you want to see climate change you need a spreadsheet with 100 years of data so you can't see you can't see that you can't see change you can only see one moment in time the movie we made a beautiful planet tony myers directed it jennifer lawrence narrated it 
it's a great, it's a well-titled movie. It is a beautiful planet. I mean, when you look at earth, it's not a disaster. It's absolutely spectacular. Yeah. yeah. Except for me, there were two issues. China and, and India to a lesser extent were very smoggy and muggy and just brown. You could tell it was really brown in, in Northeast China where Beijing is. And then India was very smoggy too. The other environmental challenge I saw was deforestation. And you could see that in the Amazon on days when the clouds aren't there, which is not very often. Also Madagascar, uh, the Belgians back in the 1950s and 60s just chopped down about 90% of Madagascar. It was a rainforest island, and now there's a little strip of rainforest in the east. Those, those were the environmental problems that I saw. And when you look at the planet, I've got some pictures here in my studio. There's this thin, thin, thin blue line, and that's mm -hmm. our atmosphere. Yeah. And above it, there's never going to be any human being ever that's from above that line. Everybody is from Earth and always will be from Earth, at least in our solar system. There's no planet where you can live without spaceships and spacesuits. And so it it really struck me that we have planet A and there's no planet B. That's a really good point. You know, and that, that's kind of what I was getting at with that question is, is, is that, I mean, it, it, the impact that that must have is profound. Like we It, it was profound for me. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, I'm going to make this point. It's, it's, it maybe is a real bummer, but it's, we have to acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> Three of the people I flew with, I, I flew on two different missions, a two week shuttle and a 200 day Soyuz space station with with Russian cosmonauts on both flights. Mm -hmm. And I loved Russia. I love the people and the culture. I really enjoyed my time there. We worked together. It's, it's been a really good partnership for over 20 years mm -hmm. now, almost 30 years on the space station. Yep. And three of the cosmonauts that I flew with are now in the Duma. They're congressmen in Russia promoting the war, wow. promoting the war. So these are men and women. There's two men and one woman that I flew with who should be the most enlightened people on earth. They spent months and months of their lives off the planet. And yet they're promoting that evil genocide in Ukraine. And so a lot of people think, well, if we just flew, if you could just fly Trump and Putin into space, they'd be, no, they'd be, when they came back, they'd be Trump and Putin. <laughs> um, yeah. So to be, or whatever, it, it, some people are changed. Some people are thoughtful. I think if you're disposed to be open-minded and, learn new things. I think space can profoundly affect you, but if you're not, then it won't, you know? So I, I think one of the most important things is sending people to space would be great. I think sending them on foreign exchanges on earth as kids, like if every 16 year old went and lived in a different country, we'd have a better planet in 20 years or 30 years, you know? Yeah. Going to space is not the be all end all. Uh, I, I used to think it was, and I have three data points now that show that it's not. Uh, yeah, I like that, that the point about, you know, the, the willingness, I, I suppose, of, of putting yourself out there or allowing yourself to, to consider these things. You know, I myself, I mean, this program is produced out of Japan. I've been in Japan for, well, geez, this January is 20 years now. Oh, wow. And, uh, where where yeah, in Japan? Uh, Western Japan. So I'm in a small little town on the Inland Sea. Um, on Hokkaido or Honshu? No, no, no. Down closer to, say, Hiroshima. Not within Hiroshima oh, yeah. Prefecture, but uh, right. fairly close. I'd say an hour and a half in the bullet train away. From okay, there, but uh, a tiny little town, and wow. uh, you know, in, in these twenty years, I've met people that are quite gregarious, and you know, and embrace right. the culture and learn everything as much as they can. And it's funny, you meet some other people who you would think that they come here for those reasons, but they keep to themselves and they don't really yeah. fully embrace it, and they don't really get all that involved. Maybe they don't speak the language, although they've been here for years and years. And it's just interesting, like you said, kind of returning to that point of of people and. You know, you, you have to have that willingness, I suppose, to be open to all these different mm -hmm. ideas that, that are about, you know, around you. Yeah. So. Some people really profit from that and some don't. Yeah. I just saw the most amazing thing today. It was a Japanese 10,000 person chorus. The conductor mm -hmm. was Shanturo, Shanturo, I've, something like that. It, mm -hmm. They were playing Beethoven. It was the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the baseball team? Is, is Hiroshima your baseball team? Yeah, they, they, it'd be the closest one, the carp, Hiroshima carp. The carp, right. the carp, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then like the, the, the fans here are absolutely fanatical about it. It'd be like the equivalent yeah. of, say, the NFL within the States, you know, like how, yeah. how diehard those fans are. I mean, that's that's what baseball, pro baseball is like over here. Yeah. I went to a Giants, Tokyo Giants game and a Chiba Latte okay. Marine, yeah, Marines, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. In, uh, what's what town is that? 
So the Giants are out of Tokyo. Yeah. And then Chiba is just outside of Tokyo. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, it was more like a college football cause they got a band and every player yeah. has their own song and it was the most awesome. <laughs> and yeah. it's very uniform. It's very Japanese, right? Like everybody <laughs> exactly. does the same thing at the same time. Uh, you got it. You got it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every day. I, I love you know, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting culture. And uh, again, kind of speaks to the point of, of being here for, for 20 years. I mean, every day, you never know what you're going to get every day. And uh, that's, that's kind of yeah. what the, the allure of it is for myself at least. And uh, anyway, I digress a little bit here, but. I love yeah. Okonomiyaki. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. The food is awesome. I mean, the food is yeah. another reason perhaps why I'm still here. It tastes right. great and it's super healthy. So yeah, you right. really can't go wrong. It uh, kind of sucks you in this place and uh, yeah. it, it keeps you here. Uh, that's that's for certain. But uh, maybe returning to our talk a little bit here yeah. really quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could go on. Again, that'd be a whole different podcast too. I could go the on. Jap to, but, the Japan uh, could be a series of podcasts. Oh yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. I guess returning to that point of you know, what we we're just speaking of in terms of the relationships with people, with one another within space, what strikes me is that you certainly have missions, you have different experiments, you have reasons for being there, obviously. Right. And you're working with these teams of people that are coming from different cultures that you just mentioned, you know, different ethnicities, backgrounds, all these different things. And in a way, say that time within an international space station, it, it's almost a microcosm of how life should be, perhaps, you know, here mm -hmm. on Earth. You know, whether, whether it's within yeah. an organization, a business, you know, a school, whatever it might be, I, I'd be curious to hear, you know, your perspectives on that and maybe what you, you tell others about that. Yeah. I've been speaking, like I put bread on the table by doing public speaking and yeah. for the last five, six, seven years since I left NASA, one of my lessons was I, I, I talked about this incident we had uh, with an ammonia leak. In fact, my first, the National Geographic book I wrote, View From Above, I chapter five, the whole main chapter was about this ammonia leak. Ammonia is a coolant fluid, kind of like your car radiator has yeah. cooling fluid and it leaked, which is a deadly thing. It, it actually kills the space station. We thought the station was done. And the Russians said, Hey, we're going to work together. We went down on the Russian segment and closed the hatch because they don't have ammonia down there. So it was a, it was a, it was a moment where we we're working together with the Russians. They had already invaded Crimea. They had started the civil war in Donbass. We had it wasn't a civil war, it was an invasion. We had put sanctions on them. They had shot down that civilian airliner. Lots of terrible things were happening. Yeah. And here we were in space and they said, hey, come stay on our side. We're going to work together. So to me, that was an example of how people can and should work together mm -hmm. down here on earth. That was my like, the cooperation in space is great. It's really going well. And then, and then my buddies that I spent a lot of my time with decided to go promote the war and <laughs> they used the space station to promote the war. They were, they were recording pro war messages on the Russian segment of the space station. And so, uh, it was, um, yeah. it was like, bring me back to reality kind of yeah, gut punch, to be honest. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I mean, were you aware of that in the moment or in that time with that? Some of these pro war messaging, what was going out or is this something after I, the fact that I gotta be honest, I, <laughs> In my in high school, I was voted most gullible because I'm very trusting. I just trust people. And I was promoting, I'm like, look, the Russians are, they should be our, and they should be our friends. But yeah. I didn't, I did not think they were going to invade Ukraine. I kind of thought, well, Crimea, the people in Crimea wanted to be Russia. It's not that bad. You know, I was, I was duped just as much as any Western politician was. Mm -hmm. When you look at what's happened, or I should have been open in the nineties when they pounded Chechnya. But certainly in 2008, when when Putin just destroyed Georgia, and then when he decided to not give up power, that should have been a giant flashing warning light. And yet we just kept on appeasing them, you know. Anyway, so my eyes were not as open as they should have been when it. Mm. Anytime a, a dictator, authoritarian kind of guy is killing journalists and jailing opposition leaders and keeping himself in power forever, it's always himself. Your, the warning lights need to go on. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully our eye, eye, eyes are wide open now. And although it's more fun to talk about space, it's more fun to go, how are we going to land on the moon? How can we get to yeah. Mars? The reality is we all live down here on earth and we need to get that yeah. straight too. Yeah, so yeah. these kind of conflicts don't grow. Certainly. Had you been aware of something like that going on within you know the space station, you know, some of those mess that messaging coming out at that time, it, it surely would have been a delicate situation, no less. I mean, this is oh something that we haven't spoken about, but like 
you know, conflict, how do you manage it? How do you deal yeah. with it? How do you be mature about it? Because again, you're up there for some of these missions that are stretching out for months on end and you, you can't have divide, right? Like, no, our, the way we handled it. Well, I was right in, in the middle of this. And what we would do is we would say, Hey guys, politics is politics. We're going to focus on trying to stay alive, yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. to not die during this ammonia leak. <laughs> we're we're going to work together. And everybody kind of agreed. And I, there was a warning signs. One of my Russian, well, like I said, several of them are now on the Duma. And, and one of them was a big Crimea's Krimnash. Crimea's ours is what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't as bad. Crimea was kind of a bloodless coup. They came in, they called them Vizhlibiludi, which means polite people. The, like their army came in, they didn't, they took their Russian pat, badges off and they were just, it, it wasn't that terrible. If you were up there now, it is that terrible. It would be it would be really I think strained and the astronauts are professional people they've done a great job staying professional I think the leaders on the ground have not done a great job <laughs> but uh, the the crew in space has done I think a very good job just going hey guys let's keep the space station running and let's not you know yeah. have some uh, tragedy yeah. <laughs> and we'll let the we we can't you know the reality is they can't change the war so. Just get your job done. Just do your job and, yeah, and come yeah. back to Earth. But yeah, well, maybe this might be a nice point to uh, to segue into this uh, this middle segment here. Something called the water cooler story. And to be honest, I mean, you've shared you know a couple stories already. But I'd be curious if you had something you know another brief one for us, really quickly, just for uh, for this particular segment. Anything related to to your time up there, or you know, anything's popping to your mind right now? Yeah, I've got a million um, <laughs> stories I could tell. Well, I had this one incident. I was out side on a spacewalk and man, I thought I had, I had been a fighter pilot and test pilot. I thought I had done a bunch of stuff, space shuttle pilot. But when you're out on a spacewalk, you you got this thin millimeter thick piece of plastic and there's instant death on the other side of that plastic. So <laughs> um, you're pretty focused. And I, I remember, and you're busy. It's you're busier than the NFL draft. You're on the clock. The yeah. clock is ticking for eight or nine hours. You're in the spacesuit. And that, so I was plugging in cables, power and data cables for future capsules. So now, when this was years ago, but when SpaceX and Boeing capsules dock, they get their power and data from the cables that I laid down. We laid mm-hmm. down like 400 feet of cables. And so super busy. And then I had a minute. So I stopped and I kind of just rotated around to look out at the world. And uh, I could see the sunrise. And that was like I was hearing from God, like this is... God's view of creation and humans are not supposed to see this. Yeah. It was really, really powerful. And then I had to get back to work to get back to plugging in the cables. <laughs> so, and that's kind of a microcosm of spaceflight. There's the most amazing, you're floating. That's amazing. You're seeing yeah. the yeah. universe. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, and then you, 99% of it is just working on boxes and cleaning up and, you know, exercising and just mundane right. things. I call it. It's a juxtaposition of sublime and mundane. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly what it was like going through my head as you were just describing that. I mean, you, you're doing these mundane tasks. Otherwise, it would be mundane, say, on Earth, you know, laying cable or, you know, right. working on these little things here and there. Not little, but some of these right. you know, tasks. But the context of, of, of the whole situation, you're, as you said, floating in space and doing this, you know, glancing over your shoulder and seeing the sunrise from space. I mean, you, you've got this really, like you said, juxtaposition of all these different sort of things happening all at the same time that uh, just must sort of mess with your mind in, in the best possible way, I guess. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get yeah. at. Yeah, yeah. It well, really does. That. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we could shift into this last segment here, Terry, something called the crystal ball segment. As the name implies, we're looking towards uh, the future, usually trans predictions, so on and so forth. And uh, recently, I came across this rather provocative article, or at least I thought, on the future of space exploration. And mm-hmm. uh, the thrust of this article was that that countries, say, like the U.S. or China, who's certainly developing a lot of, you know, you know, the, their aspirations are quite well known in, in that realm. But the article was saying is that these countries themselves, due to this, this sheer amount of costs associated with space programs or just the technical sort of demands that they require, can't do it on their own. And then when you consider the world that we're living within right now and the divide, I mean, geopolitical yeah. divide, all these things going on, like, is it, you know, feasible for us to, to, to have these dreams of having people living in space within 10 years, which have been some yeah. stated objectives by some, you know, what, what would yeah. be your take on this? Well, we've had 
people living in space uh, continuously since November of 2000. It's been 20, almost 23 years with the space station. And then before that, the Russian Mir was up from yeah. like 86 to 99, something like that. Mm-hmm. So we've had people in space now for well over th- most of almost 40 years. But getting into orbit is one thing. It's expensive. It's dangerous. It's difficult. But we can do that. Getting to the moon is something much different. And getting to Mars is at a zero onto that. You know, it's much, much, much more difficult. I'm I'm doing a talk about how to get to Mars here in a few weeks. I've got to put that together. It's a it's a big job. Um the, but the the bigger question is should we be doing it and what you know, we got poverty here on Earth and war in Ukraine. Why are we messing with space? And I think that's been true ever since the sixties. Uh there was a I think a guy the it was a book or a movie. It was called Whitey on the Moon. And the, his it was written by a black guy. And he was like, why are we worried about space when we have all these racial problems on Earth? And the reality is we're always going to have problems on Earth. Yeah. And so if we wait until poverty is solved and disease is solved and there's no more war and we're going to have to wait till we're in heaven, you know, it's never going to happen. And, and there's a lot of benefits that come from space exploration. There's certainly a lot of inspiration that comes from space exploration. So I think it's reasonable to spend a part of what you spend. Also, the U.S. budget is much less than half of a percent, maybe one third of a percent, something like that, that we spend on NASA. It's 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 a very small percentage. NASA still gets a lot of money. They still get 25-ish billion dollars. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and so they need to be as efficient with it as they can. But it's not like they're spending, you know, 20% of the federal budget or something crazy like that. So... I get what other people are saying that solving the war in Ukraine is more important than the space station. Honestly, solving food security or for the next 50 years is much more important than the space station, but that doesn't mean America's a big enough and capable enough country that we can walk and chew gum. And so for, I think, and also partnering with other nations, the biggest benefit of the space station hasn't been the science or even the engineering. It's been the international cooperation that we've had. I think, cooperating with nations that are like-minded in terms of they want to respect human rights and they want to have, you know, promote freedom in one way or another. And there's different ways that people do things. And I'm not saying everybody has to be an American democracy, but at least you you need to respect the uh, kind of some foundational principles of the rights of humans. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it'd be great if we work with those nations, go into the moon and, and Mars and beyond. So, yeah, so that's that's a long, that's a PhD thesis top, topic, mm. but those are some thoughts. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and I think one of the other things, too, within that article that I found interesting, but uh, we don't have to get into right now, but I'll just you know mention it, was that the private sector as well, I think, is, is yeah. probably going to play a large role. And we're seeing that unfold right now, obviously. Yeah. Um, we already spoke sure. to that to a degree, but yeah. Okay. Well, I do have one last thing here, and I do want to ask you this. Uh, mm-hmm. I understand that you do have a book coming out this spring, and you already have two out right now. You released two already, but this one's going to be a little bit different. And it's called "The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet." Yeah, maybe you could tell people a little bit about that book and uh, what to expect from it. Yeah, when I first had this idea, I wanted to make a book called "Ask an Astronaut," and I came up with a hundred questions, and I wanted to write it for kids, so like ten to twelve year old. It's not like a first grader kind of book, but it's not necessarily a young adult book either. So, cause that's when I was really inspired and in middle school is kind of the age elementary school, middle school, that's when you capture kids. And so reading is what got me hooked on being an astronaut. So I wanted to write something for kids. So the publisher took, I wrote all these questions and they said, let's turn it into a narrative. So they, the editor kind of helped me re group the questions into launch. Like this is how you launch and this is how you live in space and this is how you exercise and so there's different ch- sections of the book but it's illustrated and so it's uh i think it's a cool book i think the publishers did a great job i'm on tour in the middle of april doing a little 10 city book tour i think it is i'm not exactly sure what date it releases i need to get that straight but it's coming out soon it's been in work now for two years how to astronaut came out in september of 2020 which is like the worst imaginable time, you know, it was before the vaccine. Nobody went, it was Christmas. Nobody, you couldn't go to the mall that year. So nobody went to Barnes and Noble and like found it on the shelves and stuff. So I feel bad for the publisher, but uh, they're going to keep that book going for 10 years. So I like writing, people are excited about space and it was fun to 
you know, do projects to help, help make it more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that book available for pre-order right now or? The Astronaut's Guide, the kids book, it, it yeah. should be available for pre-order. My publisher is called Workman. I'm always a big fan of local bookstores, just like Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. So of course you can always do Amazon, but I, I've encouraged people to try and find a local bookstore and support it. It was funny that movie 30 years ago, like Barnes and Noble was the bad guys. Yeah. But now you want people to go to Barnes and Noble because even they're at risk and the, you know, Amazon's taking over the world. So, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can order it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure today. I mean, the, the time is just blown by. I can't believe we, uh, we got through it all, but uh, I, I've got to thank you for, for taking some time one for joining the show and just sharing all these wonderful insights. I really appreciate that. It was fun. Great, great questions. And Good job prepping, man. You had some, you had a lot of, uh, a lot of great prep work done. Well, I try, I try to set these things up for success. And, uh, I, th I think with you, I, you know, I could have had three questions and somehow, some way you'd have turned it into something fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, though, it's been a, a great time and I really appreciate that. So for those interested in learning more about Terry and his work, of course, you can check him out on his website, terryverts.com or also on LinkedIn under Terry Verts. He's also on some of the major social platforms, Twitter at Astro Terry on Instagram, Astro underscore Terry. And for reference, all these links will be included in the show notes. And of course, too, if you like today's show, please be sure to share. It goes a long ways in terms of, you know, getting this information out there. You can also rate, review and subscribe. And that helps way more than you could ever know. And then finally, head on over to YouTube. I do have a channel over there I launched within the last year and you can catch video conversations. And I do have some imagery off the top associated with the talk. So you can kind of take it in a different manner. And again, launch that within the last year. Use a bit of love. You'll notice that right away. So if you do uh, you like what you're seeing there, hit that subscribe button. It would mean a lot. And then finally, don't forget to tune into the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Mm -hmm.